Hello and welcome to the Cadre Journal. I'm Joseph and today I'm very excited to be joined by David Martinez. David is a filmmaker who has filmed all over the world in Iraq and Sudan and David is presenting and in the process of uh, filming a new movie entitled The Eagle Has Crash Landed, The World According to Emmanuel Wallerstein. That film is in the process of being fundraised, so there is a fundraiser that will be linked in the description uh, of this episode. And David, it's a pleasure to have you on. I want to start talking about Emmanuel Wallerstein himself, but why you feel it's necessary to make a film about him, his life, his thought. On the description for the fundraiser, you talk about how his profound thought has influenced the world that we live in today. So can you talk a bit about how you first learned about Wallerstein and his political thought, his writings, and why you decided to make a movie about him? Sure. Well, uh, I first encountered Emmanuel Wallerstein in 2000, his work in 2003, um, and the United States had uh, just announced that they were going to invade Iraq, um, even though Iraq had nothing to do with 9-11. It was in the post-9-11 fever, you know. And a friend from Italy, uh, it was actually a couple different friends, one of them from Italy, they, they, had, they had just purchased this book called The Decline of American Power. And it has a, it's, it's a really good book and a great way to get a, a great introduction to Manuel's thought. It's a, there's a, the picture on the cover is a crashed helicopter. He, um, and it's all taken from, I think it's all, I think it's all taken from uh, lectures he gave. So it reads really well. And um, on the back of the book, there's a, uh, there, there's a, there's a blurb from him, the, you know, the little introduction. And he says, uh, you know, he, it was published in early 2003. Um, this is right after the biggest demonstrations in human history uh, against the war all over the world. Um, and uh, he said, the U.S. is an empire in decline. And this, uh, this war that's coming up, this invasion is an attempt to reverse that. And that's not going to happen. It's actually going to make things, it's going to make things worse over there. And it's going to leave the U.S. in a less powerful position than it is now. And I said, I said, I said, shouldn't he wait a bit before he makes a proclamation like that? I mean, things have just kind of started here, you know, and, and they hadn't actually technically announced they were invading yet i don't think and um and i said yeah so should, shouldn't he wait and, and before he makes a statement like that and my friend said you know he's a 19th century style intellectual he makes a proclamation says this is what i think is going to happen this is based on my knowledge and my research and um you know if i'm wrong i'm wrong and and i i really admired that and then shortly afterward um i was contacted by a journalist who said he was looking for someone who was comfortable in war zones. He said he was looking for someone who was comfortable filming in a war zone and who didn't need to be paid. And so it was like, call Martinez. So um, uh, so I agreed to go with him and, and, and film for him. Uh, in return, I would have equal access to the footage and I'd make my own movie. So anyway, I went to Iraq for, for uh, what was that, seven months or something. And um, and, and I took the Wallerstein's book with me and I read it while I was there and everything he said was happening right in front of me. You know, this was indeed making, it made Iraq worse um, than it was under Saddam Hussein. And, uh, and it was clearly, you know, a bit of a disaster. And so I just got really interested in him and there's other essays in the book. There's a really good essay about Islam 
and he likes to tackle questions. And, and I, I guess I'm of a similar ilk. He likes to tackle these big questions. Like he, there's a chapter just on, you know, why, why is Islam, you know, something that people in the West are concerned with, you know, or have opinions about, you know, why, why, why was, you know, and he breaks it down as to why. And, um, and so I really liked his approach. And so I started reading more of him and then I got other gigs and traveled other places and kept reading his work. And it just helped me make sense of the, the places I was going and the things I was seeing. And so I made these other movies and then, um, I sort of have a list of movies that I would like to make in my life. And I wanted to make one about a thinker. Uh, and, 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 um, and so I wound up making this one, but, uh, well, part of what happened was the, um, was that his, his daughter moved Kathy Wallerstein. She moved to Bay area and I became friends with her and, um, and Emmanuel would come visit her and, and her daughter, his granddaughter. And I asked if I could interview him. And he said, okay. And so I started interviewing him and I would just take the interviews and, and make little clips of them and put them on YouTube and then, uh, then decided to go ahead and make it into a full blown movie. And in a way it was a culmination of the work I'd done in these different places, you know, trying to kind of pull it all together. Um, and, uh, I mean, that's actually what the way I pitched it to a grant that I got was, I said, this is a culmin, this is a, the logical next step for the films I'm making, I've made them up. I've made a, a, a couple about conflicts and I made a couple about social movements. And now it was time to sort of try something to pull all this kind of thing. And so that's, that's, and so that's, that's why I decided to make this movie and how I got interested in his work. Fantastic. And just from what you've told me, you were understanding Emmanuel Wallerstein, uh, his perspective on American hegemony through his own life, through his own experiences his own engagement with some very influential thinkers like Walter Rodney, Franz Fanon. So how you explain it to people uh, through Emmanuel Wallerstein's life, through what he experienced, uh, and how that helps make uh, a complicated academic theory more down to earth and more understandable through his life. Uh, as, I, as I read about it and, um, and then um found myself you know people asking me the same question i found it hard to hard to explain in a nutshell because yeah it's a it's a it's a big set of it's a, you know it's a big it's a lot, a lot of information um but then i found that the best way to explain world systems analysis is to explain how emmanuel came to world systems analysis and so what happened was he was a young guy who was i think he was uh born in the 30s i could look it up here but so he was a little older than the baby boomers so he was uh, too young to go to World War II, but um, so he's in high school in the late 40s, I think. And then um, in, and, uh, in any event, he, this is all in New York City. He's from New York City. And New York City was, as he put it, was the capital of the world, you know. And, the, and, um, and he, gets in, he gets interested in world uh, affairs and he joins up with this organization called the Young UN. And it was, the, and you know, the UN is founded in what, 1945, I think. Anyway, they have, they start this organization called the Young UN, you know, for young people to get interested in world affairs. And um, and it turned out that in these these young UN groups, there was quite a lot of Africans. Because right. what was actually happening was the French were trying to stack the deck. The French knew that they were going to lose their colonies. That was in the works, and they wanted to maintain. Uh, an influence in Africa and 
in each of these countries that was decolonizing, there would be some people who wanted the French to still keep a hand in things and some who didn't. And so the French wanted to push the, the former, the people, you know, their friends. And so they were trying to, through this young UN group, try to sort of tilt things in their direction. Right. <clears throat> so, so Emmanuel joins this thing, and so he meets all these Africans. And then also that you would go to the, they, they would all get to go to the, the, they would go to the UN meetings. And then the UN meetings, there were these parties, you know, when the, after the UN would meet, there'd be a Latin American delegation, a Middle East delegation, and the uh, Southern African delegation, Northern African delegation. They would have these parties. And so, and so he would go and meet these people. And a lot of the people from the young UN and the people he was meeting at the UN parties, you know, those became politicians in, uh, in Africa. And so he traveled extensively in Africa and um, maintained a lot of contacts there, um, became friends with lots of people. The, the rumor has it that half of the people at his wedding uh, were assassinated. Wow. Um, and uh, yeah, Walter Rodney was one of them. Uh, I don't know if he was at the, but he was a friend of Emmanuel's. Um, he was assassinated with a car bomb in Guyana. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, um, and, but anyway, to world systems analysis. So he, he gets very interested in Africa and he was, he was going to be what they used to call an Africanist, uh, an Africa specialist, right? Yes. He was, he was going to be an Africanist. And then, so he studies Africa. He, he writes quite a bit about it. And, um, then he gets the feeling as he put it, that he was kind of chasing headlines, you know, um, that, uh, um, he was kind of down in the weeds and he was looking for a broader, um, a, a broader, broader kind of answers, et cetera, et cetera. And so he, he goes to do research about two countries, Ghana and the Ivory Coast, which are right next to each other. Mm -hmm. And um, so he starts studying Ghana. And, um, and I should say some of this is going to sound kind of old hat, right? right? But at the time, people, uh, at the time, it wasn't. And so Ghana, and so he starts looking at Ghana, and says, well, Ghana was directly colonized by England for 90 something years. You know, and so you can't really talk about Ghana without talking about England. Mm -hmm. And for that matter, you can't talk about England without talking about Ghana. Ghana affects England as well. Maybe not to the same extent, but, you know, so that's really, now you're talking about another country. And then Ivory Coast was colonized by France. And so you have to talk about, you can't talk about the Ivory Coast without talking about France. And now we're talking about four countries. And France and England have their own relationships with Germany and Russia and the United States, et cetera. And that's going to play into the way that they deal with their colonies. Not to mention there's other countries next to Ghana and the Ivory Coast, some of whom were colonized and some weren't in different ways. And the more he looked at it, yeah, he said, you can't just take this line in the dirt called Ghana, which is actually fairly arbitrary, how <laughs> the country's borders in general. Mm -hmm. And and you can't just take this 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 fairly this thing called the nation state, this this country called Ghana, and just sort of separate it and talk about it. You have to talk about how it's connected to all these other places. And maybe it was easier to see in a directly colonized country, you know, um, but it was a bit more obvious. But he, then he, so he says, you can't talk, and you can't talk about Ghana talking from the Ivory Coast, and, you, and the Ivory Coast, you have to talk about France. And, it, and then he realized you could apply that same analysis to all countries. Right. Yes, that's right. All countries, even the powerful countries. Even the United States, it thinks it doesn't have anything to do with any other country, which of course is not true. Right. And um, so he, that's what he basically expanded it. And, he, and at the time, 
and still to a great extent, the nation state was was the unit of analysis. A country is like this or a country is like that. And he said, you, you can't really use the nation state as your unit of analysis. Right. And he said, my unit of analysis will be the whole world. And and, you're, and he talked about smaller system. You look at the regional system, then the medium system, and then the world system. And so he has articles like Mexico in the world system. And um, but in any event, so that's what he that's how he comes to this idea. And he looks around for anybody else who might be doing something similar. And he comes across the work of a guy named Fernand Braudel, B A R U D E L. And Fernand Braudel wrote this brilliant work. It's three volumes, and it's just called Mediterranean. Mm-hmm. And it's looking at one period of history that I, I, for 1500s, 1600s, also very important. Um, that's sort of the long 16th century, 17th century when, when is when capitalism develops, when really the beginnings of our modern world happen. And and uh, both Emmanuel and I think and Braudel are very interested in this. And so Braudel takes this one period, and each volume of this work is is using a different lens of time and so one of them is looking at really long time like centuries it looks at land you know weather and another one looks at a shorter version like kind of a hundred years and then the last one is like down in the weeds you know you know prince so-and-so invaded over here etc etc and he and and Braudel likes to bring in all these things together like there's I remember there's one somewhere in there he says uh something like and now I will demonstrate how the how a, a change in the price of uh, wool allowed so-and-so to invade the city of Castile or something like this without firing a shot. He likes yeah. to connect it all together. Uh-huh. And, um, and uh, it's also quite a, uh, uh, quite a bit about like the first, the first book that's the one with all the, that's looking at the long expanse of time. Again, this is the book Mediterranean, the Fernand Bardell. Um, there's quite a bit about nature. Um, he talks about, the difference between you know people who live in mountains tend to stay there and people who live in deserts tend to move around um how uh societies um that are along coasts or in port cities tend to have more in common with other port societies than they necessarily do with the interior of their own of their own country um he has an entire ch- uh, chapter on camels uh-huh. and it made, made me think like what like to think about this what if camels had gone extinct like that that could have happened i mean species go extinct right what if there had been a camel plague you know ten thousand years ago or something you know think how different that region of the world would be without camels because you can't you can't cross those deserts with horses you would not have been able to have you know a persian empire you know very you know things would have just been really different and so i think and so that's and and, and again so he's looking at the mediterranean as a system saying you can't just look at syria or italy or spain or they're all connected by this this system called the mediterranean and so i always say one way to look at world systems analysis is you can't talk about italy without talking about camels right even if even if even if there's no camels in italy there's camels in syria and and turkey which is right there you know, and that that dramatically, you know, so it, it's it's pulling all these things together mm-hmm. and trying to understand how they work as a system. And so Fernand Braudel, he had coined the term world systems analysis for what he was doing. And so Emmanuel was looking for something and he found Fernand Braudel's work and he said, ah, that's what that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do what he did with Mediterranean, but I'm going to do it with the whole world. Right. And yeah. Throughout the film and in discussions with you, it's also very clear that Emmanuel was 
building this out of his own experiences with, as you were just discussing, uh, his research in Africa, but in addition, in taking that theoretical leap in world systems analysis to go and analyze the entire world, you talk about his various, throughout the film, you know, taking footage of him. Uh, if people go and watch the trailer on the Indiegogo fundraiser for uh, The Eagle Has Crash Landed, you can actually see in the trailer um, his meeting with Subcomandante Marcos uh, in Chiapas with the Zapatistas, which is incredible footage to watch. So can we talk a little bit more about some of these uh, images, some of these, uh, some footage of his real life encounters with social movements, revolutionaries. You also mentioned his encounters in Iran as well. I'd love to hear more about, for people who are already fans of Emmanuel Wallerstein, what new sort of dimensions of his life and engagements and, and footage they'd be able to watch in this film. Yeah, um, well, one thing is, one of the things that Emmanuel really posited um, uh, was the importance of the global South, what we used to call the third world. And I don't, I'm sure he wasn't the only one, but he really stressed this. And he really said, you know, there's more people, more land, more actual wealth in the global South. And we need to incorporate the global South into the way we look at the world and, and, and stop talking about it like it's this backwater and then the most important places are England and the United States or whatever. And well, that, and, and I agree. And um, that definitely won him a lot of fans in, um, in, in the global South. And so uh, they really like him in Latin America. Uh, and there was a, what used to be anyway, there was a house in, in San Cristobal de las, Chiapas, San Cristobal de las Casas in Chiapas um, called Casa Emmanuel Wallerstein. And what had happened was, this uh some of his friends in mexico when who were very influenced by him when the zapatistas rose in 1994 they got in touch with emmanuel and said emmanuel th this is what you got to pay attention to this is this is changed the debate here yeah. and they're talking about a lot of the things that you're talking about and um and uh, now how he got invited to that actual that's a good question i need to find that out that yeah. footage was given to me by one of his uh by a, 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 an acquaintance in Mexico. Um, he was also very influential to, to Abdullah Ojalan, uh, the head of the PKK, the Kurdish Workers' Party. And for similar reasons, they all they all kind of, um, his, his emphasis on the Global South, his, uh, also Emmanuel uh, put a lot of emphasis on the necessity to grapple with horizontal kinds of organizing, that this was a, that you know, he 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 writes a lot about the problems that the left has had in the past, and he he does a good job of saying, you know, I'm going to break this down into three and and or or four or five, whatever. And and one of them, one of the problems that he points out is there's a consistent criticism about the the vertical structure of some of these organizations in the past, and people want a lot of people want more horizontal and democratic kind of organizations that they to work with and this has been a problem in the past and it's something we should grapple with as i think the way he would put it and so of course the zapatistas are very much about that and um uh so and and, and then abdullah ojalan uh you know when they reimagined the pkk they brought those kind of uh um the, uh, they brought those kind of analysis and analyses into it and so the, uh, there's a there's a book of his prison writings Ojalan's prison prison writings and uh, and 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 Emmanuel wrote the introduction. So, um, so yeah, that's why he's been that's why he's been um, uh, influential to social movements. Now, I don't know if it'd be fair to say he's 
really part of them. And, right. you know, to, to the extent that somebody like Noam Chomsky, I would say is, you know what I mean? I mean, eh, maybe I'm splitting hairs here. I mean, he, but he was, uh, you know, he wrote, he wrote, I mean, he wrote a lot and the, and, and, and people involved in social movements found his, his writing, uh, illuminating inspirational is, is, is right. the way I'd put it. But, um, and, and those are some of the reasons why you mentioned Iran and he went and did a series of lectures in Iran. Um, and, uh, um, I mean, I, I've absorbed so much of uh, testimony about him, uh, but I remember this guy saying uh, the reason he was popular in Iran was because the 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 the, 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 pro, the young people, the protesters, the same people who are in the streets right now in Iran, they like him because he talks about the importance of democracy and the importance of social movements, and and so that's why the protesters of, in Iran like Emmanuel Wallerstein, and then the rulers of iran they like emmanuel wallerstein because he talks about um the decline of american power and they're like yeah exactly these guys aren't the powerful ones anymore, so you know don't, don't listen to them anymore and so uh um and uh and, and i wanted to say that you know but he has this emphasis on social movements and in my own life i've i've seen that as a a, a big divide between political thinkers right. um pe people who are social i mean i would call myself a social movement person you know it's like I think change comes from social movements and I'm always interested in social movements. And then I know other people who aren't so much, and it doesn't mean that their work necessarily suffers. It's just, they, they pay attention to different things, you know, and they don't, you know, and, um, but yeah, I mean, I come out of political activism and um, me and my close friends, that's kind of how we look at things. I would say we're, we're social movement guys, you know, and, um, and, uh, and, and, and Emmanuel definitely was for sure. As, as somebody who like, who saw the importance of them, uh, one of the most influential things that happened to him was he was a young professor. If you look at the, where we have the fundraiser, want to make another pitch to uh, please take a look at the link. That's going to be on the website for this, this podcast and mm -hmm. pass it along to anyone who might be interested. Think about giving a donation. We're trying to raise money to finish the film. Um, but you'll uh, see there's a design for a poster there. And that's from a photograph of him with a megaphone. And he was a young professor at Columbia in 1968 when uh, the students took over, he was on the faculty committee to negotiate with the students who had taken over part of the university. I mean, that story is well told elsewhere. And, um, but that's when he, that's when he realized that the movements of 68 were something that was historic and, and more importantly, different than, than the, than leftist movements of the past. This was, this was, and um, he, he, he wrote quite extensively about this. And, and so the, you know, the real, for instance, the real challenge of the movements of 1968 and their real success was actually their influence on the left. Right. They, they, they changed the way the left, the world left thought about things. It, it, for instance, it was no longer possible to say, we got to have the revolution and then we'll talk about feminism and then we'll talk about the environment. And it's like, no, we're going to talk about these things now and right. we're going to work these into our struggle. And, and that's dramatically changed things, you know, that's taken, that's taken as red right now, you know? And, um, and uh, so that, the, 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 so that was a, a big influence. And he, he always says that 1968 was a big turning point in his thinking, you know, this, this was, this was a new era of social movements and um, et cetera. Um, yeah. So, how was that how was that how was that that was great and i i want to pick up exactly on that because you mentioned this in the description for the fundraiser as well that wallerstein indicated that the way forward is class struggle but class standing for an integrated fight against capitalism racism paternalism and neocolonialism when 
we talk about Wallerstein on this podcast or his theories as a, within the broader framework of the study of imperialism, it's always in reference to exactly that, that there could no longer be a simple, straightforward class analysis where it's just focused on, you know, one type of worker and non-respective to others. So just even discussing, as you mentioned as well, a lot that Wallerstein was at the, the forefront of putting the global self into this analysis with a, a global analysis of, of revolution in the global South. I wanna discuss why that, why that matters, why Wallerstein, in addition to the other theorists at the same time, Bordel, Andre Gunder Frank, Samir Amin, who are at kind of the forefront of, of pushing this perspective within uh, the broader frameworks of, of Marxism or global studies or sociology, why it's necessary that they're saying you have to pay attention to the global south you have to pay attention beyond just the typical eurocentric kind of analysis of class because that's one of the reasons i i find wallerstein so compelling well i mean he originally he originally argued about the importance of the global south simply because it was not being paid attention to by uh sociologists in the global north right. and incorporated to to the extent that it was the importance, the importance that it had. There, there were also things like they weren't really measuring economies the right way, and when and, um, realized that Brazil had a had a you know was now a huge economy. I, I mean, well, here's one way to look at it. Um, uh, I think radicals in the global north had thought about you know it, it, going from the late '60s into the '70s had thought about the global south as being a place of you know, huts and thatch roofs and banana plantations. And then they woke up one day and more cars were being produced in Mexico City than were being produced in Detroit. And 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 uh, the biggest cities were rapidly becoming Sao Paulo and, you know, and Jakarta and places like this. And this this was and this was just this was a, a you know, rapid as the third world industrialized and that it was time to reassess how all this was playing out. I guess that'd be the simplest way to put it. In thinking about Wallerstein with his sort of prolific writing, going from that analysis of the world system in the you know development of his career towards later on, writing uh, very extensively about the decline of American power, um, there's a speech actually that he made here at at my university at Cornell um, that we read in our we have like a reading group on campus and we read his speech that he made where he's talking about sort of the way forward of the world and talking about what the world after America will look like. Um, and it's a really compelling speech to listen to. So in making the film, what have you sort of tried to, you know, even with that title, The Eagle Has Crash Landed, what are you trying to say to an American audience too about this concept about American hegemony declining and, and why people should pay attention to Wallerstein on that subject? Yeah, um, he... Uh... Yeah, early on, he said, quite a while ago, he said the U.S. is an empire in decline, and every administration is going to do, uh, is going to act basically the same. They're going to try to slow it down, and uh, and and that was exactly so. If nine eleven had not happened, the George W. Bush administration would, in, in, for in in terms of foreign policy, would have been, for all intents and purposes, the same as every administration before it, basically going back to the end of the Vietnam War. Mm. And I know a lot of people were, would, would have been like, no, 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 those, those guys were really crazy. It's like he would have, he said, I mean, I asked him this question. 
And yeah. he, he said, yeah, was like, um, you know, but w- they were given the opportunity and, um, and, uh, he, he and Emmanuel had been pointing that out for a while, but, but yeah, but he's basically post post Vietnam war, the U S realized it couldn't just directly intervene anymore. Um, and, um, and so it would try to influence things without that direct intervention. And that is basically what you saw with every, every, uh, administration after that. But, and then, and then, um, <coughs> the, the neocons come in and, <clears throat> you know, a lot of people forget they, they, they wrote a, a like manifesto called the, uh, the project for the new American century. Right. Yep. And they and they 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 clearly spelled it out. They then they said, yeah, I have an interview with him where I, I think it, it might be part of it might be in the trailer where he says, I'll I'll translate that for you. The project for the new American century. You know what they're saying? They're saying Wallerstein is right. The mm-hmm. US is in decline, but we can reverse the decline. Mm-hmm. And we can reverse the decline with macho unilateral militarism. And that's what we're going to do. They say that in the in the in that in that document. They say, they clearly say the United States is not the power that it used to be economically. It's still very powerful. Not the power that it used to be politically, though it's still very powerful. <clears throat> but what we do have, they said, was we have we got the world's biggest military. Yeah. So that's what we got that no one else has. So we got to use that to put ourselves back in front and regain the full hegemony we used to have. Yeah. And, and, and that's what we're, that's what we should do. And they say, okay, where can we do that? Okay. So we can invade. We, so basically they're saying we got to throw our military might around, which is kind of like saying invade somewhere. Like that's basically what they're saying. Yeah. And you know, where are they going to invade? They invade the Solomon islands, you know, invade Kurachau, you know, that that's not going to do it. You got to invade somewhere or use your, throw your muscle around somewhere strategic. Mm-hmm. The middle East is very strategic and the one country they can get away with it in. They said this. They said we can get away with it in Iraq. We can get away with it in Iraq because because Saddam Hussein has no friends, and so that's what we should do. We should figure out a way to muscle our way into Iraq. They say this long before 9/11, and so when it happened, it's no accident that they said, "Okay, we have just been handed an opportunity to do the thing that we had planned, and we're going to figure out a way to go into Iraq." And that's what they did. And um, and uh, you know, and like I said, back to what we said at the outset, Emmanuel said this is going to be a disaster, and it was. Um, I was going to bring up another interesting and controversial uh, proposal that Wallerstein put out uh, quite a while ago. Um, so back in the 1980s, after much research, he announces, he puts forth, uh, after doing a lot of research, that um, that there is actually one world capitalist system. And at the time, this is during the Cold War, most people, most thinkers said, no, there's really two. There's the, the Soviet you know, communist system, socialist system, and then there's the capitalist system. And he actually said, no, the, the Soviet and the Soviet satellite states are within the capitalist system. Uh, the, the, it was not going to, and, and that the socialist system, the, the, the Soviets and the satellite states, that this was not going to last um, for various reasons. One of them being that those Eastern European countries that they had built, you know, apartment blocks and trams and auto factories, et cetera, that those economies weren't strong enough to be supporting that. The Soviets were bankrolling it because, and and taking a loss because they wanted to show the West 
that their standard of living was going to be more or less the same. They wanted to show people, you know, it's right there next to them. You know, they wanted to show that if you lived in Moldova, if you lived in Czechoslovakia, you lived kind of like the West, if you know, more like you know, that, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it would be as if the United States had done the same with its satellites. And he was clear pointing out that Guatemala and Nicaragua and Honduras could be viewed as, as U.S. satellites. And I think that's accurate. Um, the U.S. doesn't like to use that, that term, but it would be as if the United States had built up Guatemala with highways and shopping malls to make it look like if you come over to our side, this is what you get. But they, the U.S. didn't even bother. <laughs> they just said, um, in any event, he said, so, so he said this, 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 this divide of Eastern Europe and Western Europe and, these so, and the Soviet system and the satellite states is, is, is going to change. They can't, the Soviets can't keep bankrolling these countries like that. that that's not a sustainable model. Um, it's going to end. And the whole idea that you've got this arbitrary line from World War II, you know, the, the basically, or okay, the Cold War, the Berlin Wall between Eastern and Western Europe, he's like, this is just not going to last. These mm-hmm. places have been in, in communicate, these places have been part of, the, these places have been part of the same system for a very long time. And this is very arbitrary. And within the rules of capitalism itself, it doesn't make any sense that you can't sell Hungarian wheat in France or sell French cars in Russia. And that, that's just the capitalist system itself doesn't like that. And, and he said, so there, it's going to end. And, and he thought it would end with a series of treaties. And he said, he said and there's not going to be a World War III. Yeah. He said they be for the simple reason, and this mind you, this is in the eighties. I mean, when Reagan is like they're building way more nuclear weapons. I mean, I was a kid then; it was like terrifying. And and they're calling the Soviet Union the evil empire, the great Satan, and people, and you know, they thought these guys were gonna go for it. But Emmanuel argued, no, they're not. They've had every opportunity to start a war. They shoot down each other's spy planes. They, you know, they catch each other doing whatever and they don't do it mm. right they've had the opportunity and they don't do it now they'll fight wars in the third world you know, angola vietnam you know but th- th- those guys having a war no he said no it's not. He, I, I i he would have put it like this i would imagine he would have said barring a major political change now there were it, it, this is not going to happen there were people in each country in the militaries of the united states and in the soviet union and remember for the listener i'm talking about during the cold war i'm not talking about now he was writing about during the Cold War, and um, and there were there there were entities that were fine with having a war, but they were obviously in the minority, for the simple reason that it didn't happen. You even had uprisings in '56 uh, in Hungary and '68 in Czechoslovakia when people wanted the U.S. to come in, like right. roll in with the tanks and kick the Soviets out for us. They didn't do it. They didn't want to risk a war with with Russia. Why would they? You know, and so, and, and that was pretty controversial. Um, and then when, and he, he thought it was going to end, the, the cold war was going to end with a series of treaties that they were going to sign a trade treaty here, a trade treaty there. Oh, speaking of which I have to give a little aside. I had this, um, really conservative history teacher when I was in high school and he used to like to point out that, that some year in the past, the United States had sold, you know, 10,000 or a hundred thousand tons of grain to Russia, the Soviet union. And for him, for this conservative teacher, that was evidence that 
the U.S. wasn't really fighting communism. Right. But Emmanuel would say, no, exactly. <laughs> they, they're not really in a war with these guys. And, they, and it is not in their best interest to have social instability in Russia if they, they don't have enough food. So, of course, we're going to sell them some grain. You see what I'm saying? It's a, it, and they're, and, and you know what I mean? The, the history, the history teacher had it backwards, but anyway. Um, so yeah, so Emmanuel thought that the cold war was going to end with a series of treaties. It actually ended with a series of so, uh, people's movements, but, um, and then it did end. And then he writes in, I believe it's 93 or 94. He writes this book called after liberalism. Right. And he, and, uh, and he, and he, and he points out that, okay, the, the cold war is over by that point. And he points out that, you know, again, contrary to what everybody's saying, you know, people were like, okay, hey, we won. We're looking forward to a period of stability. And he's like, no, it's not going to be. The Cold War was very stabilizing. It meant that there was in, in, in all the geopolitical, all the geopolitically important regions of the world, somebody was more or less in charge. <laughs> um, and the Soviets or the United States could be relied on to keep things, what was like, you take care of your area, we'll take care of our area. I mean, there were there were contradictions, et cetera, et cetera. So there were contradictions and there were there were problems with it, but the Cold War was very stabilizing. And 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 he write, you know, and he said, everyone thinks that now the world is going toward a period of more stability with the Cold War ended. He said, No, that's wrong. We're going, we're headed for a period of more instability. And it just hasn't happened yet. And and so without without the Soviets around to keep a lid on certain places, so to speak, you know, things are going to get a lot more unstable and boy, was he right. You know what I mean? And uh, so th those were some really prescient things that he said that I, I was always really impressed with. And um, that, the reason the book is called after liberalism was he said, ah, in this period we're, see we're about to see unfold, it is going to be impossible to be a liberal, to be in the middle of the road somewhere. You're going to have to be on the left or on the right. And I think we're seeing that play out very much in this country. It's very hard to say, well, I'm kind of on neither side. <laughs> I'm on neither. We're seeing that play out in this country for sure. But I think in the world, we're definitely seeing that. Absolutely. And I, I would like to perhaps conclude by talking a little bit more about just your personal experience with, with Emmanuel. Um, if you can kind of relate a little bit about as he's predicting these theories, you know, you, you described to me in interviewing him that, you know, you would have him go sit on a park bench and kind of just appear like this older man in the park who's just like very knowledgeable about the world out of nowhere. But of course, he's talking about very, as you were just relating, very seismic, consequential world events. And I wonder, you know, just in the times you were able to interview him and speak to him, what he was really like kind of behind the academic curtain, if you will, you know, as a person, uh, your memories of him. I'm really curious about that dimension and kind of what it was like to, to meet him and interview him. Yeah, so you're asking about the personal side of Emmanuel Wallerstein. Well, one of the challenges of being a filmmaker in a film like this is, uh, um, is how to illustrate ideas and how, and then you're going to be doing interviews and it's always a challenge to shoot an interview um, in a way, in a new way. And it can be, I, I find it really challenging. And um, so, so <coughs> excuse me. And I find it really challenging to, to shoot a really creative interview. Um, and, uh, and so I, I, when I met him, I said, this is this old New York guy. 
he seems like an old New York guy. I said, an old New York guy, you're going to meet him in a park. So uh, we interviewed him in, in, in Dolores Park in San, in San Francisco on a park bench. I wanted it to be like you're meeting an old, interesting person out in the park, and he's talking to you. And I shot uh, other interviews in a little breakfast nook of his, uh, of his, his daughter's apartment with a cup of coffee and a bagel and a newspaper. I just tried to make it as familiar as possible. It's just, um, you know, when you're making a movie about a guy who is, I mean, he's, he's an academic, uh, you know, it can, you know, I don't want, I didn't want to interview him in front of a wall of books or, I mean, I I did one, I did one in his office in Yale because I couldn't get him to, he was really busy and he's like, okay, I'm giving you an hour and a half and all right, just sit down over there. And, um, but, uh, yeah, so that's, um, as a person, I mean, one interesting part of it is he, he and his family, um, they're, he got interested in world affairs partly because he's living in New York and he was just interested in it. But also his family is real global. Um, a lot of relatives in France who were uh, uh, who were uh, French Jewish opera singers. Right. And I, th- and I think also, I mean, his daughter mentioned their names. That I had never heard of them. I don't know anything about opera. And I think also there were cantors, the people who sing the Torah. Um, so, there, I mean, he has an uncle who wound up in Mexico. I mean, part of this was obviously the Holocaust, right? The people, Jews were spread all over the place. But I think they already kind of were. That, that, that's the Wallersteins. They're all, they're all over the place. And, and everybody speaks French. And they're all in big cities. And um, another interesting aspect about his about him as a child is there, uh, he was originally going to be an actor. Wow! Um, so he's, yeah, he's, he, I know, I know. He studied to be an actor, and uh, there's a picture of him. I, I think it's in the trailer when he's a kid, and he's got this very dramatic look on his face. Um, but then he switches over to studying sociology and or, or just studying. Um, and he said, but he said this acting training made him uh, a much better teacher and lecturer. Because he knows how to get up and perform. So, um, yeah, but that's his family. New York City grows up in the Bronx. Um, yeah, everybody's really smart. Is uh, I think his brother, Maurice, uh, a psychoanalyst. You know, so they're all, yeah, they're all really interesting people. Have any other things that you want to talk about? Any Anything else that you think is worth kind of mentioning? Um, um no, I just wanted to, well, of course, I wanted to mention again, I'm raising money for this movie. Um, wanted to say that uh, everyone try to help out if you can. Uh, we're in a weird place with film, independent filmmaking. It's gotten harder to raise the funds. And while it has gotten more affordable, I just want to put that out there to non-filmmakers, it's still expensive. And movies are expensive. And um, and the grants and the distribution uh issues the, the grants got less the distribution opportunities got less and but we're still out here making stuff so any little bit helps um and the link is in the the web page of this uh interview so i want to say give one last push uh i just yeah i thank you so much that's also really good what you just said a good way to kind of close it out last reminder for people to go check it out um and and contribute to the funders or so Thank you. This this was really good. I, I learned a lot myself and I really appreciate it.